Very good evening from Kolkata. Uh, I am Dr. Shomodip Chattopadhyay, Associate Professor, Bishwabharat University, and Senior Fellow at the Impact and Policy Research Institute, New Delhi. On behalf of the team of the Center of Habitat, Urban, and Regional Studies at IMPRI, uh, I welcome you all to this uh, City Conversation series. And uh, as we know that India is urbanizing, and uh, the growth is occurring across the urban spectrum. However, uh, serious infrastructural deficits and uh, basic service delivery gaps make these cities uninhabitable and also undermine their potential as an agent of fast-paced economic development. In recent times, the growing recognition of urban problems has uh, coincided with the adoption of uh, neoliberal policies and structural adjustment programs. These policies and programs call for reduction in government budgets for public expenditure and redefining the state-centric forms of urban service provision. In fact, until the 1990s, the uh, government used to formulate and implement policies for realizing the developmental goals. However, government's incapacity in the uh, formulation, uh, implementation, and realization of the developmental goals have given way to a concern with governance. And under this new mode of governance, Government is one of the actors in the process of governance, along with different non-state actors, including uh, the civil society and the private sector. So broadly, the coalition among state and non-state actors play a major role in shaping urban governance regimes in India. One crucial feature of this regime is that the state undergoes constant reconfiguration. And as a result of that, the new socio-spatial relations and forms are, are, are emerging through the coming together of these heterogeneous elements. Essentially, the relationship among these multiple actors is ambiguous and complex. Informality uh, is the other crucial feature of the Indian urban system. There are numerous studies on urban informality in India. Some of the studies, uh, for example, show how some municipal authorities actively inculcate the, the regimes of informal land use in order to maintain flexibility to manage urbanization on the urban periphery, which uh, they would not enjoy if they enforce the regime, rigid regime of uh, property rights. So against this background, this everyday governance framework provides an important lens to understand how formal governance regimes are related to informal arrangements or associational activity at the micro scale, for example, in a market, neighborhood, or a park, and all these include the site-specific rules. And these are typically short-term, fragile, and fluid, and they are produced and maintained through daily interactions among the different actors. And there are five important aspects. Who are the actors? Uh, what are the source of their power, powers and strategies? What are their purposes? What are the mechanisms through which uh, different sets of actors get involved in these new spaces and exert their influence on urban development policy? And finally, what are the outcomes in terms of implications for spatial and social development? And, and the answer to these sort of questions determine how and by whom urban spaces or urban resources are used or accessed on an everyday basis. Uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, this uh, the Center for Habitat, Urban and Regional Studies at IMPRI, along with Industra, Global and City Makers, Mission International has launched a discussion series, uh, the State of Cities Hashtag City Conversations. And in this talk series, we have been engaging with uh, certain ex with experts on urban and regional studies uh, to, to understand the challenges of urbanization in India and how to, to find some of the ways to make the cities sustainable and inclusive. And today, uh, for this uh, conversation, we are delighted to have with us uh, Dr. Natasha Kornia, 
And Dr. Natasha Cornia is an assistant professor in human geography at the University of Birmingham. And her research examines uh, the urban political ecologies of solid waste and water, practices of everyday governance, and southern urbanism. And Dr. Natasha Corney is a part of the Birmingham Plastic Network, an interdisciplinary team of more than 40 academics working together to shape the fate and sustainable future of plastics. Uh, Dr. Cornia will speak today on everyday governance and institutional heterogeneity in Indian cities. In her presentation today, uh, she plans to discuss the ways the everyday governance practices shape the city and urban life, especially in the context of small cities in India. So once again, I welcome you. Uh, I welcome Dr. Natasha Cornia to this to our show, uh, to our to this talk series. Uh, so now it's over to uh, Dr. Natasha. Let me just quickly share my PowerPoint here. So thank you very much for that really coherent um, introduction and covering some of the really key things that I hope I'll get across in my talk as well. So basically today, what I want to argue is that to develop a nuanced understanding of governance in India's cities, we really need to capture institutional heterogeneity. And what I mean by that is the broad range of actors and the broad range of institutions that shape everyday life and shape the way that the city is governed. And to capture and to account for really the range of everyday practices that shape cities both in subtle and profound ways. So to do so, we really need to be attentive to forms of influence and governance actors that may not reflect those described in the, sorry, there we go, uh, may not reflect those described in the influential literature on South Asian urbanism. So really, a lot of the literature that many of us know, a lot of the research that is quite influential on India cities comes out of a very small number of metropolises. To a large extent, Delhi, Bangalore, and uh, Mumbai. And yet the reality elsewhere isn't the same. So for example, private capital and middle-class public lobby groups, be they environmental lobbies or RWAs, are quite influential in these cities. But in the context of smaller cities, it may be local, but surprisingly well-connected and internationally linked rotary clubs, for example, who are influential, or maybe the overlooked influence of neighborhood social clubs that territorialize the city and shape governance by and beyond the state as it is, as I've argued before, in Bar the Mountain. So such institutions exist as well in larger cities. So it's not that those institutions aren't there in larger cities but it might be that they're overshadowed by greater institutional density and the greater presence of groups that are formally incorporated into state governance structures. And I think that the importance really of understanding both everyday governance as an idea and a practice and this idea of institutional heterogeneity is twofold. Really, it firstly allows us to develop a more nuanced and grounded understanding of the city and its power structures. And secondly, and I'll return to this really at the end of my talk, is that I think it's quite crucial in allowing us to think about how we face the new challenges that a lot of cities are faced with and having to address to, and how we do that in a way that doesn't ignore key actor groups and doesn't ignore questions of power and influence. So 
For this talk, I'm of course going to draw on the literature on South Asian urbanism and other really influential work, but I'm also going to draw on a couple of research projects that I've been involved with. So the first is the Small Cities, Urban Environments and Governance in India project. So this project was read, led by René Veron and um, involved Anna Zimmer, myself and Jeremy Sanchez. It's funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation and essentially in that project we aimed to examine processes and practices of environmental governance through a lens of urban political ecology. So we examined this in four small cities, um, so two in West Bengal, two in Gujarat, specifically Barzman in Nidapur and Navsari in Amrili in Gujarat. Um, so there was over 10 months of field research in both states, conducting over uh, 300 interviews with bureaucrats, political leaders, members of civil society and households. So quite an extensive qualitative um, data set with an addition of some, a very small scale survey. I'm also reflecting really on quite preliminary findings of the geometries of power in for, uh, geometries of power in Kolkata informal governance party politics and the role of the club project, which was funded by my university. Now this project, which was um, collaborated with Shimata Roy and uh, Pooja Basachari and Shayan Ghosh served as uh, research assistants here, really sought to understand the ways that associational life shapes the governance landscape in the metropolis and build on similar research that I had conducted in West Bengal's smaller cities. So it draws on close to 100 interviews with residents in Kolkata, municipal count, uh, councillors and club presidents in low and middle income Pata. And so it's in these insights that I'm really basing a lot of my arguments today as well as in the broader literature. So I think it makes sense to start first by thinking about, well, what is it that I mean by everyday governance? How do we define it? How do we kind of shape this idea? So in short, everyday governance is the actual practices of how interests are pursued and countered, authority exercised and challenged, and power institutionalized and undermined. So this is something that occurs across spheres. It's not simply something that occurs in formal pro informal processes, but occurs in formal and informal processes. And the idea of practices is really quite important here. So what we're interested in is what actually happens, what do people do, why do they do it, and what are the relationships of power that enable or enacted through what they do. So everyday governance, I argue, occurs across spheres. It's equally the machinations of street level bureaucrats as they get on with their jobs, as it is the practices of high level policy actors and bureaucrats as they interpret, redefine and implement policies in ways that are both predictable and unpredictable. It's the practices through which local dada or strongmen control territory or resources, the ways that social clubs in West Bengal may act as both an alternative to or intermediary with the state, or the ways that uh, Anna Zimmer, Rene and I have written about in that an influential Rotary Club can enable an informal settlement to be removed and the development of a local water reservoir in Gujarat. So it is this kind of very large range of practices that fall all under this everyday governance lens. And what 
thinking about all of these practices in different spheres and by different actors does is really starts to challenge any presumed dichotomy between state and society that you know has the sense that they don't overlap, that they're somehow separate spheres to challenge dichotomies between formal and informal, recognizing that there's informal practices within formal structures and quite formal practices or formalized practices in informal structures. And really to recognize complexity and heterogeneity. And as Sir pointed out, the kind of ways that this is very specific to very specific places. Really, no institution is a monolith. We tend to think of institutions, particularly the state, as these kind of monoliths or homogeneous in their actions, but they're not. They're not homogeneous in actions or consequences. As much as we want to talk about the rational man or having policies in place, actors are not automatons, right? Actors operate with and through a variety of logics that really are not singular or fixed, but constantly renegotiated as everyone really navigates a plurality of norms and identities. So that interest in the everyday and my interest in the everyday really is about going beyond conventionally theorized structures of power and structural forms of power to think about practices of power in a much um, more, co more coherent way. Now, India is a really interesting context because it has this really rich history, I think, in the kind of academic world of thinking about these issues. This is particularly the case with authors who focused on governance practices of state actors and the situated logics that shape their actions on one hand, and those who've examined the hegemonic imaginaries of the urban that have had widespread influence in shaping everyday governance practices. So here I'm referring to the work as diverse as uh, Fuller and Benet, Hansen and Steptout, of course, Akhil Gupta's work and Asher Gertner's work, for example, is a wide range of examples here. And we can think about, for example, uh, Asher Gertner's work, which really showed how world-class discourses in Delhi created a new aesthetic that makes it possible to map environmental pollution onto the bodies and the settlements of the urban poor and the nuisance that both represent. Others have been quite deliberate with and interested in demonstrating the state as a heterogeneous actor and the ways that power relations have been reproduced through deliberate performances, in short, through everyday governance practices. And increasingly, we're seeing really rich and nuanced analysis, again, coming from a range of social scientists that is thinking about understandings of the state and actors who are maybe not state actors, but acting in state-like ways. So often employing mimicry as a tool for legitimacy, for example. And here I'm thinking about the work, um, wide range of work coming from Palat Narayana and Ranganathan, True Love, for example. So this kind of really rich body of research that I think is particularly rich for South Asia and for, for India in a way that it's less rich in other regions. And increasingly these researchers are kind of recognizing and accounting for complex and heterogeneous uh, governance networks. So there's a move beyond a focus on the state to think about how actors engage in everyday governance practices and a really a push to argue that these are not simply community initiatives or local dynamics, 
but really intensely political acts that have wider resonance and wider importance for thinking about the city. So it's not something that we can just think of as something that sort of happens on the sideline, but really to understand the city, we need to incorporate these, these practices and really recognize how often these practices overlap or replace what we might consider to be the purview of the state. So for example, in the provisioning of what we'd consider to be municipal services or broadly what we'd consider to be law and order. So here I'm thinking about anything from substituting for the courts and dealing with disputes to um, providing security to sometimes dealing with crimes in and of themselves. So it's in this space really in thinking about institutional heterogeneity, thinking about overlapping systems, actor configurations and networks, that really a lot of my research lies. So this research and not just my own, though I'll draw on it in a minute, challenges, as I noted before, these dichotomies between state and society, but also ideas I think around legitimacy and for lack of a better word, illegitimacy. And here I'm, Thinking about, for example, and as Sir pointed out, this kind of agenda around governance is often framed in terms of good governance. And good governance is something quite top down and, you know, so long as everything follows the rules that are written, then that's good governance without really thinking about um, outcomes or anything or kind of power structures within that and frames everything else as bad governance. I don't really have a lot of use for those sorts of terms. I think that there's, it's just a lot more complex than that. And that we need to think about these mutating assemblages of actors, materials, and institutions. So let's illustrate that with kind of some examples here. So my work on PETA clubs in West Bengal, I think is illustrative of these points. So I've argued in recent publications, drawing on research in West Bengal's small cities, so particularly Bhagman and Mimakur, that while these para-clubs, and these are technically social clubs, they're clubs that understand themselves to be social clubs, they're for social work, sports, the holding of pujas, and often very much frame themselves as a non-political, or specifically actively frame themselves as non-political. So whilst these clubs have relatively little ability to, for example, help residents obtain birth certificates or do these kind of quite formalized um, state actions, I argue that they're still really influential governance actors in these cities, in part because of their ability to mutate as and when needed between their role as an alternative to the state, for example, settling property and inheritance disputes, but also mundane disagreements between neighbors and their role as an intermediary with the state. So in many para or localities, the club really acts as an institutional voice when making demands on the state. So respondents would tell me that when the club goes, they represent all of us. When I go, I represent my household. And so they have a power as an institution. As well, they can serve in other purposes, so, and in other ways as an institution. For example, allowing councillors to gain access to particular areas of the city, particularly when residents of that area oppose the party of the council, that party the councillor represents. 
But the ability for clubs to act in that way is something that's produced and reproduced by a whole range of everyday governance practices. So their power is reproduced through these practices that serve to produce a governable territory and produce their role as such. And what I mean by a governable territory is a space, a, a para, a locality over which they are a key governance actor. It's often quite a nebulously defined space. People often have some problems to, you know, saying exactly where one club's influence ends and another one starts, though not always. But crucially, I think for my argument here and my argument about the need to recognize situated kind of power structures is that the clubs in West Bengal are not formally recognized by the state within decentralized governance structures. So whilst they may get money from the state for various reasons, they're not, for example, like RWAs in, L in Delhi, and by RWAs, for those who don't know, um, residents welfare associations in Delhi, who are formally incorporated into decentralized governance structures. So they're not like that. There's often overlapping kind of structures for other decentralized actions, but they are tacitly recognized and drawn on. Well, for example, in my research counselors, like I said, would access particular paras through the club if the opposition was dominant in that area, or they would often liaise with the club in their spending of community development funds. So anything from, you know, liaising with the club to identifying recipients of particular schemes, um, to using club lands, either owned or controlled land to build sanitation blocks or other services that came out of their um, out of their kind of municipal development funds. But in doing so, they legitimize the role of the club as a governance actor. So there's this relationship between the club and the state that while not formalized is crucial for reproducing both of their control and both of their influence. And that network, that network between politicians on the one hand, the state on the other, the club and other organizations, as well as residents is quite nebulous and variable. Each institutional actor becomes more or less important depending on the matter at hand. Yet I would argue that seeing the clubs only as society and non-political, even if, like I said, they tend to frame themselves as that, misses this really important relationship of power. And one of these kind of relationships is the ways in which in order to benefit from the governance actions of the club, you also need to be subject to them. So there's these kind of structures of power in which residents aren't actually free to take advantage of institutional heterogeneity. So because of particular subject positions that shift in particular moments, you might not be able to seek assistance first from the most effective actor, but rather the actor whose support you need to rely on in the future. So what I mean is, for example, often residents would tell me that, well, no, if I don't go to the club first, if I need help from them later, they'll never help me again. So you have to, you know, there's these networks that you have to navigate. And for other things, well, no, if I go to the club, that won't work. So actually, I, they don't want to hear about this. I need to go to the counselor directly. It's quite complex decisions that need to be made. Yet recent and yet 
not fully analyzed research in Kolkata, to be honest. Uh, the research that concluded about a year ago, but life and COVID and all of that got in the way of fully analyzing it so far. But the data from Kolkata suggests that clubs play quite a different role there. And this is in part because of the much more intensive and extensive institutional heterogeneity in Kolkata itself. So I think that understanding those differences is important for understanding contemporary politics of the Metro, but also of the state itself and the ways that relationships of power are shifting in quite concrete ways. So while some respondents continue to see the club as influential beyond their role as a disciplinary authority or beyond their role as a kind of social actor, and by social I mean like in terms of hosting puja and things like this, others began to note a change in relationships of power locally, often towards more overtly political institutions or those institutions who more overtly benefit from political patronage, even if they're not officially part of the party or state apparatus. So one respondent in um, Central Kolkata, for example, said, before the cooperative society was powerful here, now it's the political party. They became powerful in whose direction the wind blows. They'll have a party in office in their name. And in the broader interview, they talked about you know, the differences between dealing with the cooperative society versus when they used to deal with the club, framing that the club had previously been like the village had, you know, village panchayats and no, now no longer have that role. So these networks of power between state, the party and associational life, but not limited to clubs, obviously, is much more nebulous. This in turn, I think, has implications for how we understand everyday governance in the city and how in theory we would respond to governance challenges. And it links, I think, then to my next key point, which is really this need for situated and nuanced analysis. So need in this kind of argument that we need to account for institutional heterogeneity, I wanna make an interlinked argument that we need to take seriously urban experiences that go beyond that narrow range of metropolises that really dominate writing and thinking about urban India. And I wanna kind of pause there to acknowledge that whilst there is a lot of really great, really interesting research coming out of smaller and secondary cities, very often and very unfortunately for all of us, I think, is a lot of that research doesn't actually make the light of day. There is, I'm, we're all aware, kind of quite a few structural um, barriers for often overworked and insufficiently funded Indian academics to publish in international journals, for example, um, or to publish at all. And so whilst I acknowledge that there's lots of really interesting research coming out elsewhere, it often doesn't make the light of day. It often doesn't make it into context where it's widely available for everyone. Um, so as, as a side note. And as a result then, this kind of theorizing from the metropolis has remained dominant. However, increasingly I think that we're recognizing that those insights, they don't map easily onto the reality of smaller cities or even the secondary cities throughout India. Fundamentally, Delhi is not Mumbai. But Mumbai is also not Kolkata, and none of those cities are Burdwan, Nasari, or Mindapur. Those smaller cities, they're often relatively ignored by the state and central government. 
they're often incredibly ignored by private capital and to a certain extent by academics alike. And yet they do represent this really complex terrain that's shaped in the everyday by a multitude of actors. Increasingly though, and I am heartened to see that more attention is being paid to ordinary cities, highlighting on one hand, the fundamental connectedness of such cities to multiple elsewheres as Mbembe and Nessal have pointed out, or on the other hand, the need to take the particularities of these complex and constitutive power relations and the histories of these cities quite seriously. And we see this from, again, a, a really interesting and diverse range of academics, including Amita Shah, Gopal Shamanta, Miller and Dam, Hagen, and then of course the team that I've worked with, um, and a range of others. And I think that fundamentally, this is important for a couple of reasons. Fundamentally, it's important for intellectual reasons. Um, and that in and of itself is an important goal. But also because it's only in understanding these differences and understanding different cities that we can account for them in governance uh, interventions, both interventions led by the state and by civil society. And it's only in accounting for those differences can we begin to think about how we render all cities more just and sustainable. Which really brings me to my final point here, which is how I think that everyday governance can help us to understand the challenges that cities face and particular future challenges. And really cities are facing a lot of kind of new challenges ranging anywhere from the effects of climate change and the need for sustainability, the need to respond to things like the SDGs, but also of course more pressing issues and the more immediately pressing issue would be COVID-19. And as someone based outside of India, it's been really hard for me to track exactly what's happening um, in India, not least of which is because beyond a few cities, not much is reported in the news. And I think it'll be some time until we have really engaged analysis of COVID-19 responses. And crucially for me, um, how COVID-19 responses have had long-term effects. But it's clear that both in the responses to lockdown and in the ongoing efforts to address the virus, a variety of institutions have been important. Reports from across the country often speaks of the role of benevolent societies, clubs, NGOs, RWAs in responding to the short-term needs of many through say food parcels and sanitation drives, but also the ways in which they served to control territory in ways both helpful and problematic. For example, I read reports of RWAs choosing to block up the doors of flats where there'd been a positive case. A move on one hand, which could be seen as trying to control the spread of a virus through a densely settled colony, but on the other hand is, has questions about legitimate uses of power and really the potentially deadly effects of locking people into a flat in case of a fire or another disaster. The response of the state as well has been quite mixed and of states. We see examples of good practices on public health standpoints, but also questions of justice and proportionality. So for example, Dharavi is often raised up in the international media as this kind of best case response um, or as a success story, but the experience on the ground and 
from what I can gather, is much more complex, right? So people, again, being sort of forced into not leave Dharavi um, and questions of, is that appropriate as well? As well, I think we can recognize that these responses have been really spatially uneven. So I have kind of regularly checked in with former participants in an NGO that I was involved with in Mumbai, who dominantly live in low-income settlements in kind of Southern Mumbai. And they've reported that some of them have had really good access to support and food parcels, for example, whilst in other settlements, they've seen no access to any sort of support either from NGOs or the state. So there's these really kind of uneven responses as well. They really serve to highlight that we don't experience the city equally and we don't experience COVID-19 in the city equally. But I think that everyday governance at, like raises two key questions, I guess, for the post-COVID city. The first is fundamentally these questions of power. And that is how have responses shifted or reshaped networks of power in the city? Which actors through what responses have reproduced their role or their kind of legitimate claim on power and which have perhaps seen their influence diminished? And how does that reconfigure territories of governance going forward? And secondly, and perhaps more practi practically, is how can we recognize and mobilize heterogeneous institutions to enable more effective and ideally equitable responses to challenges such as the pandemic? So from my stance, and admittedly, this is a political orientation, what I'm arguing for is not that we just let society get on with it or let society deal with it. I think that the state has a really important role to play despite the challenges of capacity that face the Indian state. Um, but rather it's this kind of call to recognize what happens on the ground and who's involved in them, who are the key players and how do recognizing those players allow us to respond in flexible ways. These are in some ways quite simple questions. Who are the gatekeepers? Who has legitimacy and who doesn't? And how does that shape our responses? And how does that potentially hamper responses if we get that choice wrong? And there's likely to be different in different cities and in different parts of the cities. And that of course presents then this operational challenge. Top down hierarchical structures create intentional or unintentional disconnects often between state actors and those both inside and outside of the state who operate on the ground. Yet flexible governance responses are also complicated governance responses. So what I'm calling for isn't very easy. Top-down hierarchical responses are, I mean, not that they're easy, but they're kind of much more straightforward than a flexible response to understand what's happening on the ground before you respond. There's also then questions, again, that relate back to power is inherently any response that involves these institutions will reproduce existing or power relations of some. Reproducing some is locally powerful while sidelining others. So there's risks as well that we un entrench unequal power relations, for example, um, potentially very particular risks in communities that are more heterogeneous, um, where there is kind of locally powerful groups. So there's lots of questions here that I think in some ways it's quite fraught and yet also offers a lot of potential for kind of recognizing and accounting for these networks and addressing um, future challenges. I have no, no magical solution to how we do that, but I do feel like there's potential for that. 
So I think I'm going to stop there. Talked a little bit longer than I planned, but have a chance for questions. Uh, so well, well, thank you, thank you, Dr. Natasha, for your uh, excellent and insightful presentation. So uh, you uh, really uh, highlighted the importance of uh, the flexible governance framework, uh, especially as it is very much helpful for, as you mentioned, the nuanced and uh, grounded understanding of the governance regimes in the Indian cities. And uh, as we know that there is a, a diverse set of actors with uh, different sources of power, as you rightly mentioned, uh, who participate in the governance regime in the Indian cities. And uh, also you mentioned in your uh, presentation that government regime, uh, it, is, it would be improper if we portray the governance regime as singular, such that uh, the space is governed either by the state or by the non-state actor. So it would be improper. So, 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 so then it has become increasingly important uh, to recognize the complex and heterogeneous governance networks that, that shape the cities with their local specificities. And also you talked about the good governance, though the concept is a bit uh, clumsy because uh, also there is a, yes, there is a, uh, there is another concept. I think uh, uh, this is propounded by Merrily Grindley of uh, Harvard School, good enough governance. So that good enough governance is, 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 is probably much more suitable um, uh, for the in, in the context of uh, cities, especially the smaller cities in India. So, so and also also uh, uh, in, as part in, in your presentation, you have highlighted the important role the para clubs play, especially in the smaller towns of India. And how they differ, uh, the roles of the, those para clubs differ between the smaller cities and uh, a bigger cities like Kolkata. And and although and and and, the, and these para clubs they play an important role, but their role has been largely informal. So in and 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 their roles remains very much influential and depend on local power relations in general and the political scenario in particular. And also uh, you draw our attention about uh, the specificities of the cities uh, that all the cities are different from each other. And uh, there is a need to move beyond the metro centricities uh, through which the Indian academicians are more concerned with and focus more on, uh, as you rightly mentioned, the ordinary cities. And uh, finally, uh, in your presentation, I think you rightly pointed out uh, the importance of uh, uh, the important or the role that the COVID-19 uh, uh, as plays in reshaping the power relations in most of the cities in India. So yes, so 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 actually, uh, on the basis of your presentation, or uh, right now, I have uh, some of the questions. So I think uh, let me, uh, since being a uh, moderator of this show, so uh, let me just take the privilege of uh, putting my questions first, and then I'll be. Uh, I think I'll be able to uh, take on some of the questions which will be there from uh, our participants or some other, uh, like uh, Arjun is there. So they will be presenting their uh, uh, questions. So uh, my first, I have some uh, two or three specific questions. For example, uh, uh, these are more general questions, but I think these are relevant uh, uh, for the everyday governance frameworks which you have been pointing out. So uh, first of all, for example, uh, in the Indian context, we see uh, that the urban poor, they participate in the governance regimes willingly, but the terms of their participation uh, leave them as the 
a sort of subordinate partners. Their place in the city remains tenuous. Uh, there are negotiations with the non-state actors, uh, for example, the para clubs, uh, that will most likely not reduce their marginal social position in the long run. So, 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 so from theoretical point of view, so what is your thought on that? My question is, can everyday governance regimes be considered or, or uh, rather be romanticized as an alternative to formal governance mechanism and formal politics? So this is my first question. And second question is, uh, since we have done uh, some work in the uh, small towns of uh, both, uh, I think you mentioned about Gujarat and West Bengal. So uh, if you could please highlight something on the pattern of distribution of assets and urban services in small towns and how far they are heterogeneous uh, in terms of variations across the socioeconomic and infrastructural dimensions. Mm -hmm. And my third question is, is uh, we know that India has a constitutional provision for urban decentralization, but mm -hmm. its implementation is is uh, can at best be described as incomplete in terms of both functional and financial devolutions and and operationalization of the participatory avenues. So, mm -hmm. if that is the case, then how do you see the possibilities for uh, participatory governance largely in, in in this everyday governance framework? Mm -hmm. And also in India, uh, we have seen that different states represents. Uh, uh, different trajectories of neoliberal reform and decentralization. For example, the decentralization experience of West Bengal is a bit different from decentralization experience of Gujarat or say, uh, or in other states. So actually mm -hmm. I'm mentioning about West Bengal and Gujarat since you have mentioned these two states uh, mm -hmm. in your uh, presentation. So uh, what I wanted, what I, uh, I would like to know is that how does the different trajectories of decentralization in the different states affect the goal of implementing social inclusive projects and subsequent attainment of sustainable urban development and 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 how these neoliberal reforms and decentralization policies they have intersected uh, with local politics because you have mentioned the uh, overarching importance of local politics in shaping uh, these everyday governance regimes and the power structure so how uh, uh, these neoliberal reforms and decentralization policies have intersected with local politics, uh, environmental histories to affect the urban sustainable development in small cities. So, so uh, for the time being, uh, let me stop uh, here. So if you could uh, respond to, you, you may choose to respond all of them or you may uh, decide which one to respond. <laughs> okay, they're quite big questions, all of them. Yes. Um, I think that your point about the urban poor is really important here. As you said, as in broadly, the urban poor remain subaltern actors when participating in decentralized governance, even though they do participate and at times participate more actively than the middle classes, for example. And what we saw in, or what I saw in West Bengal were particular moments where this club structure allowed the urban poor to offset their marginalized um, position within particular relationships. So for example, the club as an actor was at times able to secure resources from much better endowed um, in terms of social capital and economic capital, other actors. So for example, gaining control over local ponds that were owned by kind of well-off local residents using their role as an institution and their kind of institutional stance. However, those are 
only very small moments, right? Those are only very small moments where the poor are able to offset their kind of marginalized position in society. And I think you're right that to, to a large extent, what we need is a much more kind of formal politics and not by politics here, it's not necessarily party politics. In fact, that seems to not help very much either, but is a kind of a much more sustained political shift that recognizes the kind of marginalized role of the poor and the quite complex ways that of course, community and caste intersect with that. Um, again, in different ways in different places. I think that what the everyday governance lens potentially helps us to understand in thinking about those politics and thinking about actions are these particular moments where there is space for actors to offset their more marginalized role. Whether it creates spaces or whether it helps us to understand more structural change, um, I'm not sure, I haven't thought through that you know, from that perspective before. And I think that's something really interesting to think through is potentially thinking about the tactics that the poor use in kind of quite complex ways to subvert these sort of quite oppressive power regimes. Um, and as much, yeah, it brings it, we could then go into a huge discussion about, you know, Chatterjee's ideas of um, political society and political society and things, which I think are great in an idealized way, but actually things are much more complicated than that. So maybe we won't jump into that, but I do think that there is space and scope in which the marginalized do claim power in, in small ways. And we need to think about how it is that structures can be set up to ensure that, or to help enable more sustained change. And it's, it's one of the, really interesting things, of course, with decentralized governance and with quotas and things is that in theory, the idea of quotas is, is progressive. You know, it helps to ensure that power is shared, but we know that in practice that doesn't actually work in terms of, you know, quotas for women government, like for female um, counselors and things like that. So it is about kind of quite broad shifts in society and potentially setting up structures to ensure that it's not just a marginalized actor in power in name only. Um, I have no answers for that, but I think that raises really important questions. Um, I think in terms of kind of patterns of decentralization and opportunities for participation, I think you're exactly right. There has been really different patterns of decentralization on a very kind of in in both subtle and significant ways. So we often see decentralization has often been incomplete and on paper only. So when discussing decentralization with actors in both Gujarat and in West Bengal during our project, we were often told, oh yeah, there's a ward committee. Hmm. And there was in fact on paper, someone in, you know, in charge of the ward committee and a couple of members of the ward committee. However, in practice, often those ward committees fail to function. 
they didn't meet or if they met, it was sort of a, a token meeting. They had relatively little influence, particularly in West Bengal. So on paper, decentralization was much more extensive in West Bengal. There was generally ward communities constituted, they were all there. On paper, decentralization was much less extensive in Gujarat from our experience. Um, you know, often the, the ward committees or these kind of more decentralized structures were not even there on paper or, you know, was, if they were there on paper, not even complete on paper. What then ends up being different and what we found quite interesting is the relative influence of particular actors within decentralized systems. So in Bhattavan and Mindapur, the relative influence of the chairman, uh, the chairman of the municipal council was much more significant. Um, and the relative influence of councillors was much more significant in terms of shaping the city's agenda. Though they also had to compete in some ways for influence with the uh, development authorities. So the Burdwan Development Authority, for example, who were relatively influential in some areas and relatively not in others, but kind of overlapping, um, overlapping authorities. And it's something obviously that we see across India is this often, you know, huge number of actors responsible for the same thing. And it's not clear who's actually responsible for anything in the end. Um, in Gujarat, the relative influence of state level and IAS officers. So the collector, for example, was much more influential than say the, the equivalent to the chairman in the municipal body. And so these kind of decentralization structures come down to as well, the relative influence of particular actors, particular seats and what it is that they do. Um, whilst the collector, for example, in Nevsari was massively influential and massively involved, um, that influence in Bhattamad was much less and there was much more a discussion that their role was oversight rather than kind of directly enacting things. So there has been these really kind of complex trajectories. And I'm not sure that there's one or the other that's potentially better for sustainable governance, uh, for, sustainable, um, for sustainable urbanization rather. I think the question really becomes who is enabled to do what needs to be done and are there clear structures in place? And this is often, I think one of the key challenges is that everyone is responsible for something which results in no one being responsible for it. Um, so yeah, don't have like, a, again, there's lots, there's lots there. Uh, we're actually in the middle of revising an EPW paper that will hopefully address some of these things, but it's been a while since I've reread our arguments and it's, I wouldn't want to contradict anything that we've said. Well, anyway, anyways, thank you. So uh, yeah. now, uh, it will. Uh, so now, uh, let me uh, just, uh, well, I request Arjun, if you have uh, your comments, please place your comments or observations or any questions to our guest today. Over to Arjun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Somadeep. Uh, firstly, let me congratulate uh, Dr. Kornia for uh, uh, touching upon so many things in a very subtle way. 
and highlighting so many issues and uh, uh, really highlighting on the topic uh, for today's discussion and also ma'am's uh, lecture, uh, the heterogeneity of the institutions uh, and everyday governance. Uh, one thing really uh, some of the key points which uh, ma'am has rightly uh, uh, and uh, so thankful that she has also looked into different states to get you know a, a variety of picture and we look forward to your paper in EPW to learn more from your insights. Uh, one thing I really uh, wanted to highlight that there is heterogeneity because also the informality and other parts also ma'am covered there is so much of heterogeneity in our official institutions as there is district, there is also, also you know, legislative assembly in states. So there are MLAs, there are MPs, there are a plethora of things going on. There is PWD department, land is of whom. So city as a unit virtually exists uh, uh, in someone's imagination. Uh, mm -hmm. Most probably our state department of urban development or SUDA as we call it. And uh, rightly, and then we also have something called Smart City Mission, our urban urban development ministry, and mm -hmm. uh, focusing on small towns have really given so so many of uh, insights. So be it uh, chairman, so many of things because municipality in India is also of varying types. So we have municipal corporations, then you know councils, uh, and a lot of things. Uh, other than the official uh, heterogeneity, there also I think uh, leadership matters. So. Uh, in terms of, uh, as we, uh, ma'am, really mentioned para clubs, uh, so our uh, official systems also have these para clubs or para status, as we can say, for you know different purposes, different official purposes as well. Many times for uh, uh, something called you know uh, for uh, let us say gender violence, for let us say something for environment disaster. Uh, there are also purposes. I really wanted to focus on, on, on these points only because uh, ma'am really highlighted one very important uh, part uh, which was of legitimacy. So uh, even in the official institution there is this, this, this becomes so important. So let me now come and touch upon some of the uh, uh, informal institution and also their heterogeneity. Uh, rightly as, as, as an example ma'am have cited that uh, the Rotary Club has more power than, you know, in their locality uh, for something or something other. These para clubs really are uh, uh, purposive in nature. And there is, uh, for most of the times in India, it's also seasonal. Or uh, let us say if there is, you know, some festival or something of that sort. Uh, so this nature also they have, also the formal institutions have. And uh, since... Uh, population at large, or there is a very less sort of participatory manner uh, for your built environment or wherever your, you know, habitat. So uh, people, be it migrants or be it, you know, uh, any sort of people, be it middle class, uh, they also connect with this thing. I remember when I was uh, uh, young, so uh, having, you know, Saraswati Puja or many things, uh, mm -hmm. these sort of uh, para clubs, we just have this Durga Puja, Diwali, mm -hmm. many things, so many, uh, but uh, uh, RWAs are sort of, uh, you know, answerable or some legitimacy. Uh, but how do you see it in terms of, especially para clubs, uh, how do you see it? And uh, especially in the context of uh, the control they have, because there are, you know, positive as well as negative connotation, especially mm -hmm. in Indian context, uh, especially pertaining to crime and, uh, crime and violence, this sort mm -hmm. of things. Uh, 
so uh, and i was also thinking that what do you have to say that what constructive role they can play during this time of pandemic or recovery uh, in terms of service delivery welfare delivery what can be the constructive element which can be also used uh, you know highlighting this sort of uh, 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 public engagement at local level for solving their you know local crisis or highlighting any issue uh, other than this uh, one thing uh, really pertaining to uh, this pandemic singapore has really uh, demonstrated this example that uh, they are leading this fight uh, uh, against the pandemic by uh, having uh, a technology or you know citizens friendly or even migrants uh, friendly because some of the outbreak really happened there in dense uh, compartments for migrants uh, what do you see in terms of migrants uh, uh, because uh, most of our cities are also economic centers so uh, other dynamics also comes in uh, so how do you see that uh, uh, this this para bodies uh, should take uh, you know uh, the power or control or have their role in everyday governance uh, also learning from the experience of your other countries and uh, what can be taken uh, forward uh, in terms of policy Uh, or the schemes, or what what steps can the government can take at central level, also at a local level? Uh, what do you see are lacking, or the strong points in Indian India or Indian cities, uh, which can be really uh, emulated as best practices or normal practices, as we are talking about everyday governance, uh, but also what we should uh, not practice in our everyday governance. That what should the mistakes which we really should not make. Yes, thank you again so much, Dr. Natasha. You you can just to to answer. Um, I think this question about the clubs versus the say RWAs and questions around legitimacy are interesting because it becomes questions then of well, who is legitimate? So is an actor legitimate simply because? they're incorporated into a state structure or are they legitimate when they have support of the local people and is it necessarily that rwas have more support of kind of the totality of the population within their area than a club might and i'm not sure it is and which is why i try to say that like legitimacy is is actually quite a complex thing so if people accept the kind of governance actions of a particular group they gain legitimacy through that right if people turn to them that is a form of legitimacy as well their power is legitimized through those practices and i think that these clubs like you said they do serve these kind of quite important roles of for example uh, hosting pujas and organizing social events that are both kind of about bringing community together but also about serving the poor you know there's often um themes in which you know the kind of local poorer people are given clothes or food or in you know particularly middle class areas that then kind of charity that's involved and i would i would even argue that those actions need to be seen in a slightly more complex way than simply social work social work is political and through doing that through hosting the puja and through particularly through chanda right like if you have to donate to the local puja society or the local club before puja and 
even if you don't really want to donate, you kind of have to donate in order to be seen as a good member of your locality. Um, or simply because as I've seen in West Bengal, because the club boys stop you on the road and don't let your car go past until you give them money, often in a receipt book that's already filled out to tell them how much money you're giving them, that is a practice of power, right? So whether it's coercive or not, by buying into it, and I'm not arguing that people can easily opt out either, but buying into it, their role is reproduced as this kind of locally powerful actor. So they're quite complex things, and it's really easy to really kind of quickly write it off as like, you know, just a nice community initiative. But I think that whether it's an RWA or a club, using these sorts of festivals is a way that their wider role in the community, their role in solving disputes, their role in determining, to some extent, even who can move into communities, you know, the need to, if you're a migrant to a community, to go to the RWA or to go to the club to, you know, introduce yourself, again, possibly donate in order to kind of have a role in the community. These are quite intensely political um, and quite intensely about power structures. No, saying they're political doesn't mean that I think that they're bad. There's a lot of benefits that come from RWAs and clubs as much as there are kind of some problematic elements. So respondents regularly told me stories about, for example, when we speak about the club, about how, you know, my husband died and the club took up a, you know, donation for me and that helped me, you know, survive for a few months until my son could start working or they paid for someone's funeral or when my daughter got married, I couldn't afford it and they helped me with that or they own an ambulance and that's the only way, you know, all, all of these things that are actually quite good or they helped to navigate in order to get water from the municipality, particularly in informal settlements where that's sometimes a struggle to get municipal services. All of those are really constructive things. Even pujas are constructive things in many ways if we think about kind of our lives as you know complex societies. But it is then these questions of the ways that it supports each other. And I guess my need to, or my argument that we need to not just think of them as like quite simplistic structures um, and to recognize kind of what else goes along with that both constructive and negative. Um, I'm going to leave the Singapore as example question simply because I think Singapore is such a massively different context with a massively different role of the state. Um, that I, yeah, I couldn't even <laughs> start to unpick that, I don't think. Um, in terms of policy schemes and what's lacking or what's strong points, I always, I teach a class on kind of urban environments in the global south to my students. And I always tell them that one of the really interesting things about Indian policy is that generally the policies themselves are quite good, right? Like generally the policies are the ideas behind the policy. Now there's, there's scope to critique them as well, but on paper, they're often quite good. So let's even think back to kind of JN and URM. Yes, you could have accused it of having kind of a metro bias and it did, but there was the corresponding UIDSMT, is that the right, yes, acronym, you know, to address kind of small and medium sized towns. 
So there was a recognition of the need and how the needs of those towns are different. And so if you think about policy from that perspective, there is often, they are often quite coherent. They have packages of both technical interventions and kind of governance interventions. So there's been some really great examples of that. I think what's often lacking is capacity to actually implement those projects in full, which in turn then results in quite patchwork interventions that favor particular areas which often favor those who already have power, you know, so whether that be middle-class and well-off areas or whether that be the, they favor quick wins because of lack of capacity, right? So if you're gonna make an intervention into an informal or into some settlement, it's a quicker win to make an intervention into a some settlement that's already kind of okay-ish than to make an intervention into some of them work. And I think that, when governance actors weigh up their options, often these quick wins in order to meet their obligations to the state and the center end up being the choices that are made. So there is that thing about capacity and about thinking about how it is that maybe the worst off need to be addressed first. Um, yeah, so. I have different opinions about the smart cities mission, but we won't go into those now either. But I just have different issues about smart cities in general. So, yes, the capacity part was really, and as you rightly mentioned, the, the then the scale part comes, especially at the subnational level, and things go in a very weird direction. I think there none of these para clubs or any institution uh, really play their very critical role of uh, uh, of having their voices or their concerns also coming mm -hmm. up time and again uh, because formal processes have their time uh, but mm -hmm. their time also of business like budget and this thing and that is such a tense time that nothing can be done yeah uh, you know just uh, you know the same for these para clubs or these institution so uh, when there is urban flood you, you know water and sewerage body and that becomes mm -hmm. very important but for a limited period, for for example, puja when it comes, then you have a puja to do, uh, then you can ransom and you know do a lot of things. So very interesting observations from uh, ma'am in all sort of governance that you know how uh, we are also running with time but not having the scale to carry out on a, on a very uh, this manner. Simi, we can see you. Are uh, are you? Uh, will you make some points? Yes, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Natasha Konya, for such a wonderful presentation. I really congratulate you for this. Uh, thank you, Dr. Somedeep and uh, Dr. Arjun. Mm, uh, I have no comments to make, but I have uh, very curious questions um, to make. Um, first is, um, how does the heterogeneity of uh, urban population uh, inform the urban local governments? Uh, and address uh, some of the challenges that the society face. For example, uh, pollution or uh, poverty or uh, even, even the pandemics or you know uh, challenges to public health. So uh, this is my uh, first question, if you could reflect on this. And the other is that there's a very interesting research that came out in 2015 about urbanization with and without uh, industrialization. 
and uh, in this uh, the authors have talked about um, consumption cities and also production cities and it is mentioned that the consumption the cities which are consumption cities um, they appear to be more at the sidelines um, and i mean not as developed as the production cities so um, uh, the entire pattern of urbanization uh, is quite uh, different and and it is different for all developing countries what are your views reflections on india per se um, uh, given this kind of a dual categorization and what are its implications for policy uh, thank you uh, thank you dr semi no one offers me easy questions here but that's fine um i think these are really interesting questions i think this kind of the heterogeneity of the population is not something that I've really touched upon, but I do think that it's something that we need to consider when we're thinking about um, everyday governance perspectives, and particularly the ability of particular groups to have their voices heard and the relatively lack of um, yeah, the kind of relative challenges that that might raise um, and inform then kind of governance and challenges. I would say that knowing what we know about power relations in cities, knowing what we know about power relations in societies, generally the most marginalized remain the most marginalized. Um, and so I would suspect in cities with relatively more homogeneous populations, and this is kind of homogeneous in a number of ways, whether it's caste or community or um, migrant versus mi non-migrant, there is probably clearer, um, clearer potential for groups, for institutions to work together. So, I'm just reflecting on say Burdwan, which is actually quite homogeneous in that it is dominantly Bengali and Hindu. There is of course Muslim communities, but relative to the national averages, it's, and even the West Bengal average, it's a more homogeneous city. Um, but I know that in one of the areas that I worked in, people highlighted their status as, um, as migrants, uh, as migrants from Bihar, even though they had been in Burdwan for, you know, some of them for the last 60 to 80 years, as an ongoing challenge to having the needs of their community met. And simply that by still being viewed as outsiders, there was this kind of particular challenge. And I think that uh, Dr. Ashwin was referring to this as well earlier with his question about migrants is that there are these particular challenges in very heterogeneous cities and in parts of the city that tend to maybe attract more mobile populations or populations that are seen as mobile. Um, not least of which is because of questions of vested interests and potentially questions of, you know, how do patronage politics, for example, play out in those areas and how does this in turn shape governance structures? I think it presents a lot of challenges really to responding to kind of these, these big challenges that we've seen, things like COVID-19. Um, obviously the, the movement of migrants out of cities and back to their um, native places that we saw at the start of the pandemic is just 
just serves to highlight the particular challenges that come. But I think there's also been challenges with often the livelihoods that particularly migrants and particularly um, kind of lower income migrants are in, engaged in. So the role of migrant labor and the kind of residential patterns of migrant labor in informal industries, particularly in all of the sorts of informal industries that have been shut down um, as a result of the pandemic, for example. You know, so if we think about, um, you know, the first kind of example that came to my mind is the work that my colleague uh, Nepesh Palatman had done on the kind of Momo clusters in Delhi. And if you think about the kind of significant amounts of migrant labor that's involved in that and the ways that they live at the shop and things, which obviously during lockdown, no one was selling Momos on the streets and the particular challenges of addressing their needs. Um, I guess to say ultimately that I think that that does bring challenges and ideally we would have governance systems, these kind of flexible governance systems that could account for the ways that that might shape the city and particular, um, the particular nature of kind of heterogeneous populations and their particular challenges it brings the particular situations that they find themselves in. I think is a not very clear response to your question. <laughs> Apologies for that. Um, this urbanization with and without industrialization, um, consumption cities versus production cities, it's not actually a, to be honest, it's not something I thought through before. Um, I think it was maybe raised yesterday in Genius Talk or Anyways, I've just recently come across this, um, this kind of division, which I'm not sure how I've just recently come across it since like you said, it was uh, published in 2015. But I do, I do wonder if it fundamentally then shapes the kinds of heter like institutional heterogeneity that we'll see in cities. In terms of, I'm thinking about kind of production, if we think about production cities, the cities where industrialization is important, I suspect that we would see a lot more influence from private capital um, and the role of sort of industry bodies and what they need, but also their relative ability to influence other, other governance actors and to make choices about, um, make choices about how the city is shaped and about the structures that are in place versus consumption cities. Obviously the smaller cities that we worked in with our first projects, these were all really, I, I guess, largely consumption cities. There is some production in Bridgewater, but largely consumption cities. They exist as district capitals largely rather than kind of key industrial sites. And now I'm wondering what if we kind of rethink through our previous project through this kind of lens it might reveal. So yeah, it's a really, it's an interesting point for me to take away to me. Um, I think that's really interesting. If you don't mind emailing me with the authors, that would be really great. <laughs> sure, no problem. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, well, uh, so I just have one another just a uh, queries which is related to your talk. Like uh, uh, you may uh, 
have a very quick answer to it like to what extent do you think that the political culture influences the 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 uh, uh the informalities associated with the everyday governance practices now why i am actually raising this question because you uh, surveyed two uh, municipalities one is uh, two two areas one is at bardwan and another is bidnapur so if uh, two different political parties with different political ideologies uh, uh, have been uh, were influential there then do you think that uh, that that this political culture uh, with specific political ideology would be in some way influential in determining uh, uh, the the uh, effectiveness or the local power relations which you have talked about uh, in the everyday governance framework what is your uh, thought on it? It's short, 100%. Um, so actually, when we chose to do research in Mindapur and uh, Basman, part of the reason that we selected these two cities was because at the time, Basman was still a red bastion. Yes, yes. So it was still controlled by CPIM, despite the shift in the state to CPIM. And um, or despite the shift to TMC. And so our initial thought was that thinking about Mindapur as a TMC-dominated city and Batman as a CPIM-dominated city would allow us to explore that exact thing. Hmm. Um, the elections that started that happened shortly after I started field work then resulted in a wholesale shift to the uh, TMC in Batman. And I think what we saw even during the period of field work was already shifts in which institutions were more or less important. Um, but we saw shifts to the party office in some areas essentially being overlapping with the club. Um, you know, so I, I recall one interview with a club in close to the market in Birdwad who were saying, you know, I was, I've always been influential with the club, you know, the club is the club secretary, but now because I'm also the secretary for the party office here, I have more influence. You know, so all of these, these forms of institutions were overlapping in some cases, but equally other clubs were telling me that like, you know, in the past we've managed to access this, but now, because even though we're not political and we don't support one party, people assume we are for the other party. So I think, and this is, I think what I was trying to get to with my example of Kolkata is that I think that we see kind of shifting importance of, of which everyday governance institutions become more or less important. And I think particularly in the case of West Bengal, this kind of, the party office and the state are not the same, right? They're, even if it's the same party that's in power and the relative influence of the party office isn't always quite the same as what the state has influence over and it raises yeah really interesting questions and I think there's definitely a lot of kind of influence by political culture in a particular place. So well well thank you so Arjun if you have any 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 comments. Yes quickly yes on on this aspect only yeah. uh, really on the not not on the politics of it but more on the economics and then society and then politics of it. Uh, we really discussed so many things that uh, about legitimacy and so much of things happening of different mm -hmm. heterogeneous institutions. But uh, uh, where should the accountability lie or uh, 
because we also discussed decentralization not happening mm. you know at the very fore then what should be the institutional practices for you know determining also the accountability because mm. then uh, amidst this uh, everyday governance we are also losing uh, so many of things we we had to done but anyhow one more thing i really wanted to ask that that you really highlighted the the role of private capital uh, i don't know not you know the private capital i would say uh, so much so uh, but also the city's economy per se mm -hmm. uh, because uh, within a city uh, there is also heterogeneous sort of growth led by mm -hmm. also heterogeneous players so uh, uh, that is also, uh, you know, that growth is also then leading to from formal side having plan or also contestation between those different heterogeneous group, then also from the private parts, uh, which is leading to plan, non-plan and a mix of it, uh, that sort of, you know, uh, growth and direction uh, leading to very uneven development as we know, we are again mixed up with. So uh, I really thought that that lens is also very important that uh, are you determining it or who is determining it is not yeah. being determined. Uh, because what the formal structures are also trying to do, do and what is happening over the period of time, that also is becoming not a very powerful tool uh, uh, in terms of politics. Because mm -hmm. they are also, uh, 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 I see, you know, also a different sort of structure taking more power over a period of time for the growth uh, for, for the city, city uh, city's mm -hmm. development. So, uh, really, what also uh, a thing that what uh, did you see that what can be done for a uh, city's economy uh, uh, as well as an uh, aggregate city mm -hmm. amidst all this, you know, heterogeneous thing. <laughs> yes. um, where should accountability lie? I think it depends on what particular sphere, what particular kind of thing we're talking about. Um, obviously, informal actors are accountable to the people they serve, to those who are subject to them, or else they wouldn't exist, right? So, and what I mean by that is that a club only continues to exist because they remain accountable in some way to, um, to the community that they are part of. Equally, you know, in some ways you could say that local strongmen only continue to have influence, not only in their oppression, but because they do, they are accountable to people. These kind of politics of patronage, both on informal and formal levels there. So there is always accountability of some sort. I think if we're talking about where should the accountability for state policy lie, the accountability for state policy needs to lie with the state, you know. So ultimately, you know, as as beneficial as I think it can be to incorporate all of these kind of informal institutions, both in sort of participatory ways, but also in delivering state policy, it's of no use to anyone if essentially once the money changes hands, the state washes their hands of it. You know, and so accountability needs to lie in that case, I think, with the state, um, whether that be the kind of decentralized state actors or it really depends on the sector where, you know, what we're particularly talking about. Um, 
yeah, there needs to be able to claim making on the state, I think is still really important. Um, and I think whilst I tended to talk in this talk about non-state governance actors, everyday governance actors, I would never deny the importance and the continued role of the state and the continued can need to hold them account and to account for their everyday governance actions. Um, the question of the economy, I think is really interesting. And I'm not sure it's one I actually have a very good response to right now. This, except for to say that I think that there are these kind of interesting emerging dynamics that we're seeing in new ways between planned and non-planned economic development, not planned and non-planned spatial um, development, and the ways that that's contributing to spatially, but also um, economically and uh, socially un unequitable and uneven development, I think is taking on new dynamics as new sorts of neoliberal policies come in, be they kind of stepping out of, you know, increasingly stepping out of the kind of real estate market, allowing FDI in in new ways, um, be they the relative influence of external actors. So making, you know, we'll invest in this particular part of the city so long as X, Y, Z happens. Um, and I think that this is actually, from my perspective, something that needs more research. It's something that we need more engaged, um, kind of engaged engagement with. And it's something that was part of an unfortunately unfunded grant, but that we're hoping to do kind of further work with to kind of really think to what extent um, these new dynamics are, are, shaping, are shaping cities. So, um, yeah. And I see someone in the chat has pointed out that it's important for people to be accountable as well. We can't just keep saying that the state needs to be accountable. Um, and I would agree, right? We all, Part of living in a democracy, part of living in a society is that we are accountable as well. Um, that it's, you know, it's rights and responsibilities. And part of that is also about holding the state to account. Individuals are, we need to hold our leaders to account, whether it's holding the, you know, British government to account or the Indian government to account, holding our counselors to account or, you know, all of these things, this is, there's a role for individuals as well, which thank you for pointing that out, um, Joey from the chat. Yes, we really missed some discussion on landlord because we also discussed uh, uh, migrants. That there is also a lot of power dynamics, especially in, you know, emergency yeah. and uh, and many things we really discussed. Thank you. Samyadip sir, if you want to add anything. No, 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 no. I think I think uh, it's 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 a wonderful discussion uh, for all of us today. So it's really nice to hear you, Dr. Natasha. And uh, what I uh, think is that uh, from today's lecture, what we understand is uh, that that the, the spatial and political space uh, this afforded by these uh, these everyday governance regimes stands in 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 stark contrast to the formal governance regimes in India. And there are. Uh, multiple governance actors, and it is improper to to bank on a singular order of governance if we really want to understand the messiness of the complexities of the uh, Indian city governance structure. So, 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 the recognizing such multiplicities of governance uh, would enable us to analyze uh, and determine how and by whom 
the urban space is accessed and used. So, so once again, on behalf of the team Impri, uh, I thank you, uh, Dr. Natasha, for uh, giving this talk. And we hope that we will be uh, having more of your participation in near future, in near events of Impri as well. So thank you. Thank you once again. And uh, good evening. And have a good day. Thank yes. you very much for including me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Have a nice day.